neutral or imprint? What do you reckon? This is a trick question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, How about whichever one you feel strongest in, in the particular exercise that you're doing? Okay. Good. uh, What about you? For me, neutral or imprint? Well, before I, before I answer that, I'd like to talk about what neutral and imprint are. Okay, but then you need to answer the question. Okay. Okay. Hold, hold me to that. I will. Uh, so um, this is one of the most consistent questions I get um, from people, whether it be on social media or diploma students or even certification students um, reaching out to me in Slack. And uh, I, see it, I see it a lot in, oh, no, I wouldn't say a lot, I see it very consistently in, in other people on social media posting about neutral versus or neutral or imprint or whatever. So um, I think though this episode was your, came from, came from your brain. So is that true? And uh, if so, where do you, where do you see this question raised? I don't necessarily think this is from my brain, but I think that it's really important for us to revisit these, this particular topic, because like you said, it's just one of those cult classics in the Pilates industry is neutral versus imprint. Um, and I probably spent the first two thirds of my career teaching in neutral and believing, well, teaching in neutral and imprint, but believing that neutral was the gold standard in terms of both safety and alignment. You too. Probably longer than me because you were certified before me and then you became a teacher trainer. I think I'm older than you in Pilates use. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I learned to stop Pilates, I was taught that neutral spine is the safest and strongest position for load-bearing and shock absorption. And I think that's pretty close to verbatim what I was taught because I had to repeat it ad nauseum. Um, Say that one more time, please. Neutral spine is the safe, strongest and safest position for load-bearing and shock absorption. Okay. I could probably expand on that and say neutral spine where the lower back has its natural lordotic curve is the strongest and safest position for both load bearing and shock absorption. I'm pretty sure that's what I was taught. Yeah, I think I was taught that as well. I don't know that the language was as fancy and technical as you just described, but that's the picture I have in my mind if I rewind time. And... uh you know, neutral spine, I was taught, is uh, when your ASIS, the pokeyati bone at the front of your hips, and your symphysis pubis, your pubic bone, are aligned vertically if you're standing. So, yeah, you put your heels of your hands on your... I, I mean, this is like semi-pornographic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, but it was just one of those weird things that we all did back in those days, like, yeah, and so sort of never thought twice about it. But now I think back, I'm like, that is so not appropriate. <laughs> but you used to put your heels of your hands on your ASIS and the 
or and the fingertips on the symphysis pubis, and then try and tilt your pelvis back and forwards until your fingertips and your heels of your hands were level. So if you're standing up, your, your hands would be vertical, and if you're lying down on your back, your hands would be horizontal. That's right. And so that was the that was the definition I was taught of neutral pelvis, and I was also taught that whenever the pelvis is neutral, that the spine is generally neutral as well. Uh, and that, but that's the neutral position of the lumbar spine is a gentle lordotic curve, so it's curved inwards or curved you know, towards the front, and a concave anteriorly was the fancy language I was taught, uh, and that. Um, basically when you're lying on your back, you should be able to fit like a cherry and, or, you know, a grape, something, you know, I, un, I think it was, back. it was, um, called mouse house, mouse house, make sure you have your mouse house. Yeah, actually, I think it was blueberry that I was taught. And I'm not sure if that was just the, like a, like an idiosyncrasy of the particular trainer that that taught me liked blueberries because um, blueberries in my mind are a little bit smaller than grapes generally. And definitely smaller than mice. Mm. Mm. But here's the, here's the effectiveness of calling it a mouse house. I will never forget this, but I remember one time I was in teacher training and someone accidentally imprinted and the teacher said, you just crushed your mouse. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think the blueberry was was good or the strawberry or the grape or whatever it was, because, uh, you know, you could then use cues like, okay, press down into that grape and squeeze one drop of grape juice out of it, you know, and you could use that as a, as a cue to do a very slight imprint, which is just a very, very slight posterior pelvic tilt. So I think let's, let's just back up for a sec and, and, uh, you know, talk about, I guess the, the elephant in the, you know, in the Pilates room um, on this one is that neutral spine, you know, the elephant being, of, you know, the commonly held but incorrect belief that a neutral spine is the safest and strongest position for load bearing and shock absorption. And that imprint is better for some people in terms of safety than neutral spine in certain situations. So that's that's the that's the belief that I know is very common because that's what I was taught in Stop Pilates and that's what I taught like literally hundreds of certification students uh, as a Stop Pilates instructor trainer. And uh, looking on their website uh, today, like they're still using the literally the same verbiage that I was taught 20 years ago. Um, so uh, I would – and I know that – Back in my day, like they were talking about, they had hit a milestone of 20,000 instructors trained worldwide. So I know that there are an awful lot of instructors out there who have been trained in this, and that's just stop Pilates. So we're not talking about Bassey or Polestar or whatever, and I don't know what their position is on this, but um, I hear this a lot, and I imagine it's not just from stop Pilates instructors. So, yeah, so I think that's the elephant, is that neutral is stronger and safer, and that for certain people, it's like you said, neutral is the gold standard. And for certain people, though, imprint can be safer, and particularly for beginners or people who don't have the strength to sustain neutral when they're lying on their back with their legs up. Imprint can be better. And imprint is defined as a very slight 
posterior pelvic tilt. So basically you start in neutral with that grape under your low back and then you press your low back down towards the mat by contracting your abdominals, not by contracting your glutes, uh, so that you squeeze just one drop of juice out of the grape. So you very slightly posteriorly tilt your pelvis, but you don't press your low back flat into the mat like Joseph uh, instructed us to do in Return to Life. So yeah, so that's neutral and imprint. And um, up on the Stop Pilates website, it says, quote, an imprinted position should be used to ensure stability of the pelvis and lumbar spine if neutral alignment cannot be stabilized. When there is weakness in the obliques and other abdominals, placing them in this slightly shortened position can help maintain their engagement, end quote. That's from uh, merrythew.com forward slash warm up. I have to say that when I was, when I held this belief, we tried, we were encouraged to do everything. I'm going to use um, ab series, the series of five. I'm going to use that as an example, that the gold standard was to stay in neutral. But obviously if you couldn't, it would be better to be an imprint than it would be to have an arched back. Um, and I remember when I was practicing this in my own body, how hard it was to stay in neutral during app series. Um, But we did it. Uh, And I know it wasn't just me. It was a lot of the people that I was training with at the same time. We were all aiming for that neutral spine and pelvis when we were doing app series. I mean, everything, but like app series comes to mind because when you have long legs, low and heavy, like it is really tough to try to stay, to keep your, um, from squishing your mouse. Right. And uh, when I think back to that time, you know, when I was going through that same training uh, and not the same exact training as you did, but pretty basically the same, uh, you know, I was learning the same thing. And it really makes me think like if for me that was in 2004 and, uh, you know, I think about the clothes I was wearing then, you know, I kind of cringe a bit. It was sort of the very, very tail end of the late 90s for me fashion wise. Uh, at that point. And uh, I know 90s is kind of making a comeback amongst the, the teenagers these days, but it's like I still cringe when I... When I <laughs> <laughs> it is when very I, in. It is very in. They call it vintage. vintage yeah, I was now. wearing like super low cut jeans that was like super duper baggy, like like eight sizes too big. Um, the bell bottom... Uh, and then I had these nice like furry brown track pants with a white stripe down the side that, oh my goodness, it was like <laughs> Austin Powers with a bad hangover. <laughs> you know? um, and I think, you know, just as fashion changes over time, so does scientific understanding. And in fact, so does fashion in movement. You know, I mean, if you look at um, music video clips from the 80s and you look at the way, you just turn turn off the sound and look at the way people dance. There's a really atypical 80s style of dancing. It's kind of straight arms and jerky and, you know, thinking like mental as anything or, you know, like, but any any of those 80s bands, like they, they have a, a an 80s style of dancing. And then if you look at like the 2010s or 2000s styles, like I'm thinking like Prince and all his backup dancers and all that, like it's much, it's a much more so slinky and sexy and, you know, different you know, style of dancing. And, and, you know, you could go back all the way to the 60s, to the 40s and and, and look at the, the, the style of dancing changes, you know, the way people dance changes. And so there's, this, there's, there is fashion 
in the way we move. And I think there's also uh, undeniably fashion in the way we teach people to move in in Pilates. And uh, so I think that, unfortunately, the, the sort of neutral versus imprint debate is sort of, in my mind, it's like, you know, shoulder pads versus, uh, I don't know, f- f- pink and green jackets, you know, from the <laughs> early 2000s or whatever. It's like, the answer is like, yeah, I'm not really into either of those things anymore. <laughs> Here's my question for you. Back when you were a STOT teacher trainer, I know you already said why it was important to be a neutral, but when you were being taught to train this way to other people, were you given citations or research? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out back then, what were they basing their their teaching philosophy on when it comes to neutral? Like, What was the research back then saying? Well, I I don't know they I don't know what research they based it on because there was there was zero citations in the any of the stop Pilates literature. Uh, we did get some photocopies out of the Kendall book, uh, Muscles Testing and Function with Posture and Pain, about uh, and the photocopies we got were just the side view posture analysis images showing the different you know flat back, lordotic posture, etc. There wasn't an explanation of neutral or anything that came from Kendall. Kendall wasn't very scientific anyway. It was just somebody's, you know, expert opinion, not not really based on research. Uh, so yeah, there were no citations. I think that like that it's such a good point that you raised because I think the the bigger point there is about epistemology or basically how we know what we know. And at that stage of my life I was in my early thirties, I didn't know, or I did, I didn't know enough to discriminate between trustworthy versus untrustworthy sources of information. When I say trustworthy, I don't mean like, uh, you know, well-intentioned or, you know, nice people or anything like that. I just mean like, is this information reliable? You know, is it a true account of how the world actually works? And so I, had a lot of respect for the people who were training me. You know, Stop Pilates was a very established brand all around the world. And uh, because of that, I essentially uncritically accepted everything that I was taught, right? So I just went in there and there was a manual. It was all printed. They had beautiful glossy photographs and lots of words that sounded like super scientific, like transversus abdominis and shock absorption and, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, oh, this is totally... There, there just there didn't even occur to me to doubt it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. How about you? It's the same. It's absolutely the same. I, I didn't come to Pilates as, um, you know, a dancer or a personal trainer. I was a stay-at-home mom. Previously, I was into social work and family advocacy. So, I just was that person off the street who liked Pilates and walked into the Pilates studio. And I was exactly the same way. I, I paid a lot of money and I just thought these people know what they're doing. They like you, you know, they, they had really nice litter uh, handbooks and they had a syllabus and that was enough for me, even though I was college educated and I know what a reference list looks like. I've written citations before I've read research papers and scientific papers. I, it just, 
um, it just didn't occur to me to question their their sources. It just didn't occur to me until actually I joined Breathe and I was like, wait a minute, this manual doesn't have any citations in it. Where did you get this information from? So yeah, I, I'm with you. I just, I thought, I just put my, I blindly put my trust into it. And I think, you know, um, you and I are both looking at, we were looking at the, the Stott Mary Thew website about pelvic alignment. And so I'm confirming to the audience that I see it too. Like I'm with you on that website and the words that they use make themselves sound really legit, right? Like it's like they're using fancy words. They're not, it's not some fifth grade reading level. This is like, it looks legit. And so I think sometimes, you know, me back then when I was originally training, I would have read something like that and I would have been like, oh, they know what they're talking about. This is, this sounds really intelligent. And for me, it was when I went to university, I, I went back to university in my early forties. So like a decade after I'd become a Pilates instructor, I was, I was, I, at the time I went back to university, I'd been teaching Pilates full-time for a decade. I had my own studio, you know, like my whole professional identity was wrapped up in being a Pilates instructor. Went to university, studied exercise science, and like the, the, I actually had, I remember the moment when I realized uh, my epistemology changed, you know, that when we started university, we had to do this compulsory pre-recorded lesson with a librarian showing you how to use the library, you know, how to look up citations and references. And, and it was just like a 20 minute pre-recorded video with some, you know, middle management librarian, sort of tubby lady with glasses with a little strap around her neck, little chain around the neck for the glasses. <laughs> and she's, and she, possibly the most valuable 20 minutes I spent in my whole university degree right? Just from this librarian who was probably paid $12 an hour or whatever, <laughs> but she was brilliant. And she just explained like, okay, if you ever not, you know, need to know something like, you know, any fact or whatever, you, here's how you look it up. And she showed us how to use Google Scholar and how to use PubMed and how to go into the library and look things up. And, and, um, that was for me, that was like an, such a massive aha moment. It's like, oh my God goodness. There is like essentially all of the accumulated knowledge of scientific research over the last hundred years is essentially free on the web. And all you have to do is look for it and it's right there. And if you want to know the answer to any question, if someone's ever researched it, you can find that answer in a matter of minutes, probably seconds. And I just started going bananas with this, like, you know, I had an argument with my mum, not like a, just a, like a, you know, discussion with my mum about, she was saying, I oh, put on sunscreen, don't get skin cancer. I'm like, oh, I wonder if sunscreen actually does stop skin cancer because it stops you getting burnt, but it does it stop the actual UV rays getting through and does, so does that change, you know, the skin cancer risk? So I looked at it as like someone's done that research, right? Um, and, you know, do seatbelts save lives? Like, uh, my mum also told me, don't ride your bike with your earbuds in, right? Because you can't hear the traffic and you might get hit by a car. I was like, huh, what about deaf people? Right? They're allowed to drive around in cars. I wonder if they have more accidents. <laughs> so, so you can just go look stuff up, is my point, right? And, and 
it's amazing. And I, there's not an answer to everything on, you know, in the scientific literature because some things we just don't know the answer to yet. But you can, anyone, anyone can just go look it up. And uh, so that to me was such a revelation. And from that point, I gradually started to get more curious about, you know, some of the things that I'd been taught. And, and I started out by looking up why it was true. Like I was like looking up, okay, why is it true that neutral spine is the best and safest you know, position for weight bearing and shock absorption? Like I wasn't questioning whether it was true. I was just like, okay, great. This is really interesting. I want to know more about this, right? <clears throat> and when I looked into it, I started learning like, ah, oh, not everyone agrees that this is true, right? And there's some scientific literature here that actually says it probably isn't true. And yeah, so so that was that was that moment, the 20 minute video course with an, an, a nameless librarian in 2012 or something. First of all, shout out to that librarian because she actually changed your life, and this is why we we're here talking today. She was the the starting point, and also um, I'm laughing and picturing you like on a quest for your confirmation bias about neutral, and then coming up short. Like that makes me laugh. Um, I want to hear. I, I do want to hear about how you started to make shifts within your own practice as well as your staff's practice when it comes to neutral spine. But before we do that, I would love for, I think it would be a good place to, for you to talk about some of the research about neutral spine and imprint and all of the things that we learn about in the diploma about load, load management is stupid better than squat lift, that kind of thing. You had a whole list of things and I think this might be a good place to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, Okay, pause. Neutral or imprint? <laughs> I reject the premise of the question. <laughs> that is not fair. <laughs> so when I, uh, all right, uh, when I when I lift, okay, if I'm if I'm squatting with a barbell on my back, or if I'm deadlifting, uh, or if I'm you know, picking something up off the floor or whatever, I never pay attention to the position of my low back. It's just not part of my consciousness. Don't care. Uh, when I'm doing ab work, like Pilates, hundreds, etc., I neither. I flatten my lower back as hard as I possibly can towards the mat, mm. just like Joseph intended. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, and the reason I do that, actually, is because uh, there is – well, the reason I do it – actually, yeah, the reason I do it is – not because Joseph said we should do it, because I don't believe in blindly following anyone, including Joseph Pilates, even though the man was a genius. And I do happen to agree with a lot of the things that he said. I don't do them just because that's, he told me to do it. You know, if he told me to jump off a cliff, I wouldn't. Um, but he was a pretty clever guy and said a lot of smart things and I'm in agreement with a lot of them. Um, although I'm in disagreement with other ones, but um, when it comes to uh, flattening it back into the lower mat when you're doing your ab work, which he definitively instructs people to do in Return to Life, he says something like, "In the supine, when supine, uh, always press your back full length into the mat or floor." Right? I'm paraphrasing, but basically, it's pretty. That's pretty close to verbatim quote. Um, so he definitely wants you to press your low back as hard as you possibly can into the floor anytime you're lying on your back in, in Pilates. And uh, so that's not an imprint. That is like an imprint is, I was taught, is a very slight posterior pelvic tilt where you're not pressing your low back 
into the floor. You're just very slightly flattening it. So I'm with Joseph on this one. And the reason I'm with Joseph, and in fact, this is a reason where if if my only choice was between neutral and imprint, right, and I can't choose like neither of the above, if I'm doing ab work or teaching ab work, I would teach it in imprint. And here's why. Uh, you know, now, like I said before, I don't care, right? I mean, if you do it in neutral, it's going to work fine. If you do it in imprint, it's going to work fine. If you do it with your back extended, for God's sakes, it's going to work fine, right? It's <laughs> So, you know, I don't have real a real strong preference, but I just think as long as you're down there doing the ab work, you might as well get the most possible benefit from it. And there are, there we do have a couple of EMG studies, so electromyograph studies where they measure muscle activity, where they found that in a posterior pelvic tilt, you do get greater activation of the lower abdominals, right? Now, I wouldn't say this is 100% certain because we have other studies uh, that didn't find that, right? But I'm reading, you know, the literature that I've read has you know, me reasonably well convinced that when you, in a posterior pelvic tilt, you can get greater recruitment of the lower abdominals relative to the upper abdominals, okay? And uh, I just think um, it doesn't mean you get less activation of the upper abdominals, it just means you get more activation of the lower abdominals, right? So if you can get more for the same amount of effort, it's like, well, why not do it? So, right, more efficient. Um, so I, I actually lean toward, you know, if you ha- if you really had to box me into a corner, I would say probably imprint, um, just for that reason, not because it's safer, just because you're going to get a slightly better work in your lower abs in imprint. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've, so we've got, we've got some research on that and I think that is, I guess that is a reason that has nothing to do with safety. Uh, it's just to do with the efficiency of your workout. You know, if you're going to spend a certain number of minutes doing Pilates and you want to get the maximum amount of strengthening in those minutes, it's like, well, yeah, if you imprint, you, or even even better, if you squish your low back as hard as you can towards the mat, <laughs> you're going to maximize the workout in the low abs. Uh, and I don't think anyone ever came to Pilates and said, my low abs are too strong. I don't want, you know, I want, <laughs> I want to stretch them out. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... As I re as I research this, uh, uh, Natalie, I I came first to the original studies because I was looking to confirm what I already knew and understand more about why it was true, and so I came to the original studies by Stuart McGill uh, from uh, and Jack Callahan. Actually, Callahan was the lead author from two thousand and one from Waterloo University in Ontario, which I don't know if it's coincidental or not, but it's like very, very close to Stop Pilates headquarters there geographically. <laughs> so I'm not sure, you know, if there is any connection there. Um, but you know, there you have like it's like fifty miles away, um, which given the size of the planet is pretty close. Um and so what they what they found was that they took pig spines um, and they took them out of the pigs and they put them in a jig, uh, which is basically just they bolted them in between two pieces of steel and then they uh, compressed them and they compressed them uh, a little bit or a lot and then they also either bent them or didn't bend them. Um, and then they they compress they did like ninety six thousand cycles of compression. So they basically compressed them cyclically every second. So just imagine these two like pig spine vertebrae with a disc in the middle. It's like just two adjacent vertebrae with a disc. 
bolted into this jig and the jig basically compresses them together like a little concertina, okay? Once per second, press, press, press. And then there's, so there's, there's one lot being pressed and just vertically, one lot being pressed and at the same time bent full range flexion to extension, right? So press and whilst being bent full range flexion to extension. And there's actually two of each of those groups, one that is compressed just a little bit and one that is compressed a lot. Uh, And they left the machines on for 24 hours. So once per second for 24 hours, compression, light or heavy compression, with or without bending. And what they at the end of 24 hours, you've done like 96,400 cycles because that's how many seconds there are in 24 hours. Uh, and what they found was the ones, the ones that had been compressed with a high compression were basically all injured, whereas the ones that had been compressed with the light compression were basically all uninjured, regardless of whether they had been bent or not. But... Whether they were the ones that were bent and the ones that were not bent in the high compression group, right? They were all in, had the same number of injuries, but where the injuries were located was different. So the ones that were bent, you know, the ones that went from full range to flexion extension whilst being compressed, they suffered injuries to the disc and to the uh, facet joints, the pars interarticularis. Right, so they've got pars interarticularis fractures and and disc bulges. Whereas the ones that were not bent, they just were compressed in neutral, they didn't suffer disc bulges, but they did suffer vertebral end plate fractures. So the actual vertebrae fractured, right? Same number of injuries, just different location of the injuries. And so what that study was erroneously reported, or not, I guess, yeah, erroneously, it was very selectively reported was, Spinal bending causes disc bulge, right? And I, th- I think that is such an incredibly selective reading. In fact, no, I'm going to go further. I think it's just an incorrect reading of, it's an untruthful reading. So that was actually author's conclusions, right? What they said in their results was that the, the compression was the main factor that determined injury risk. So none of the low compressive force specimens were injured, regardless of whether they were bent or in neutral, right? All of the high compressive force specimens were injured, regardless of whether they were bent or in neutral, right? So whether or not you got injured, if you were a pig spine in that experiment, was 100% predicted by how much compression was applied, right? Not by whether you were bent or not. If you were injured, if you were in the high compression group, where you got injured was determined by whether you were neutral or extended or flexed. So the actual, you know, finding of that study was that compression causes injuries regardless of alignment, not that bending causes disability. Now, this is this has been there since replicated in multiple further studies from the same university, from some of the same authors and some different authors, and they've found the same thing compression, compressive force applied to the spine is the main mechanism of injury, the main predictor of injury, not alignment. So uh, anyway, I'll, I'll link to a couple of those papers in the in the show notes. But uh, so that was the original study. It was Callahan uh, and McGill 2001 from Waterloo University. But there's a bunch of others uh, like Guyas et al. 2015, Dolan uh, 
20, 2009, I think as well, that I'll, I'll link to. Uh, so we have this experiments like just, just of spinal units in the lab. And I, so I was reading this study going like, oh yeah, great. Cause the conclusion was, you know, spinal bending causes disc bulge. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. This is going to be really interesting. And I was reading it. And I was like, oh, hold on. It says spinal bending causes disc bulge in the conclusions. But like when I'm reading the actual like body of the research, it's saying that the compressive force was the thing that caused the injuries. And I was scratching my head for like six months on that one. And then I just realized, no, the authors just fudged the conclusions and it, like the conclusions just do not match the actual results of the, the the experiment and of course the conclusions are the the author's interpretation right of of the experience it's not the actual results it's the inter- author's interpretation of what it all means right so um yeah and so that's been confirmed multiple other times uh so you know and and I think you know, but unfortunately the initial finding, you know, bending causes disc bulge, right? Just became like a fashion, like super baggy pants were in the early 2000s, you know, or shoulder pads in the 80s, you know, and it's like, for some reason, it's just like people are still wearing those clothes, but it's like it's 2023 now, you know? And I think like, you know, just like fashion changes, you know, like if you wore clothes that if you wore, if you somehow like kept an outfit from 2001, right. And then you just, you kept it in shrink wrap in your, in your, in your closet and you just pulled it out and started wearing it around. People would look at you like, you know, like kind of out of sync with, you'd, with, with current style, you would look a bit weird. Uh, and that's because fashion changes. Like if, I mean, if we go back even further, we put an outfit out from like 1600, you know, you would look super weird, right? And if you went back to like the year, like 800 or 400 or before Christ, right? And wore this, the standard toga that everybody used to wear or whatever. It's like, you would look super weird walking around in that, even though back in the day, that was just the normal, what everybody wore. And that's because fashion gradually changes over time. And when you go back from 2023 to 2001, it's, you don't look like a total weirdo, but you're just like not quite in touch with the fashion. You're a bit out of date, right? But when you go back a thousand years, it becomes unrecognizable. And I think that's the same with science. Science proceeds, you know, we have a certain understanding of science in 1980 and in 2000, we're a little bit further down the track. And in 2020, we're a little bit further down the track again. If you go back to the year 1000, right, unrecognizable, you know, we're bleeding people and applying leeches and, you know, doing like exorcisms for people to cure cancer, you know? So, you know, but if you go back 20 years, like, right, we're not doing any of those things, hopefully, but we still have, you know, recognizably evolved our understanding of how the human body functions over the last 20 odd years. And, you know, holding on to or being basically stuck in early 2000s science is not yeah, it's not the true story of how we currently understand how the body works. You know, I'm sure go ahead 20 years, we'll have evolved further again. You know, so that's why I think that the the key thing is we we can't we can't we shouldn't be hard on ourselves for believing something that's not true. Once we learn it's not true, we should just let go of it and 
believe the thing that has the best evidence behind it at that point. And, you know, we'll further understand, uh, evolve our understanding as time goes on and have to let go of that in turn. So I think that the most important thing is not, not to latch onto a single thing and build your whole professional identity around this one, you know, truth, which is really all truths in science are provisional, you know, just like fashion. I guess where I'm stuck is that I agree with you. I think, you know, fashion changes, language changes, we evolve and change. If I think back, so if you said the study was done in 2001 and it's now 2023, I'm getting into my time machine and thinking about what I look like and dress like in 2001. You had a flip phone? <laughs> I had a bar phone, you know, <laughs> the, the bar phone. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like a Nokia 3310 yeah. or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the one. I think that's the one. Yeah. Um, I had that and I was just fi- finishing up university. And yeah, my husband and I were like super sassy and cute and young. And um, I'm <laughs> not that anymore. But I guess where I'm stuck on is like, okay, so we've evolved in certain ways. Why hasn't the Pilates industry, why are we still talking about this? If If this was back... I mean, there's so many things about this study that make me chuckle and also make me shake my head. Like, for instance, I'm going to channel Adam McAtee, and he says, the one, my favorite thing that he says, we are not dead pig spines. So that's the first thing. It's like we were looking at a study, interpreting a study in a way that we were looking at dead tissue of an animal. And sure, certainly maybe pig spines look and feel and are, you know, mechanically similar to human spines, fine. But the fact of the matter is it's dead and we're alive. Uh, We are living tissue that adapts and heals and those kinds of things. So that's one thing. And then also the other thing that's really baffling to me is the fact that like, if you do anything for 24 hours, something bad is going to happen. You know, if I did the teaser for 24 hours, something very bad will happen. If you did 96,400 reps of the teaser in a row, one per second, regardless of your alignment, I'm pretty sure you'd pull up with some kind of injury. I mean, for sure. So I guess that's where I'm at right now. Like just listening to you talk about this, these studies is that, okay, maybe we'll give a pass for people who interpreted it, that, that this was valid and we could use this to look at human movement and human behavior. However, it still stands to reason that that was back in 2001 and lots of things have evolved and changed and yet this hasn't and we're still talking about it. So why? You know, why is this still stuck? Why are we still stuck with this idea? I think conf- combination of confirmation bias, vested interest and just inertia. Um, since since 2001, you know, science has pro- progressed and we've now got a whole bunch of studies looking at live people lifting things and whether they have their spine straight or bent and then seeing whether they get injured. And what we find is makes no difference. Um, We've got lots of studies, observational studies, looking at people with low back pain versus people without low back pain and, and looking at how they lift things. And what we find is people with low back pain lift with more neutral posture. So pain free people bend more. Now, I don't mean to suggest that this is causal. It's almost certainly not causal. It's almost certainly the case, not the case, that lifting with neutral spine causes low back pain. It's more, much more likely 
that having low back pain causes you not to bend as much, right? So don't go rushing out telling everybody not to lift in neutral spine. But um, we also have a lot of biomechanical studies in humans looking at what's called stoop versus squat lifting, where you, you a squat lift is where you bend at your knees and, and your hips and keep the back straight. And a stoop lift is where you keep your knees straight and you just bend forward at the hips and the torso. Like you flex your hips and your spine to pick up something. And what we find is there is almost identical force on the low back, regardless of whether you lift with a stoop or a squat. And there are lots of complex biomechanical reasons for that, but the main one is to do with moment arm. And we could talk about that some other time. But you know, there, there are multiple studies, you know, sh- clearly showing that the total load on the low back is like within 4% of being the same, regardless of whether you lift with a straight or bent spine. And in fact, the load on the disc is actually less when you flex. So the total load on the back is the same, but where in the back the load is distributed changes. And when you flex, the load actually moves away from the disc and the deep ligaments, and it actually is much more uh, distributed into the superficial ligaments, the lumbodorsal fascia and the supraspinous ligament. Uh, and so actually your disc has the lowest uh, proportionate load on it at about 90% of full flexion, right? Which is really, it, it's kind of the opposite of, you know, of this notion that neutral spine is the safest. Now, again, I'm not saying neutral spine is dangerous. I don't believe there's any such thing as a dangerous spinal alignment. I think all spinal positions are fine, and it's a matter of load tolerance, right? If you if you subject a, a structure to load that it's not built up a tolerance to, then you're risking injury, right? So you have to build up a tolerance for, for load in whatever position you want to use, right? Neutral, imprint, flexed, extended, whatever. Um, so we now have a lot more research, right? But... So, you know, back to those sort of three things, what you, what you said about, um, you know, why we've, we're still holding on to this belief. Why is it so prevalent? And I said uh, confirmation bias, uh, vested interest, and just inertia, right? So confirmation bias is like me when I first went to look this stuff up, right? So you just look for confirmation of what's already true, of what you know is already true, right? So you're not actually trying – you're not too curious. Oh, I wonder if this is true. Let me let me go and see. You're like, oh, I already know this is true. Let me find evidence for that. And so when you have when you're working from a like confirmation bias sort of uh, perspective, which most of us do most of the time, me included, um, you just go look at look for evidence that confirms what you believe, and then you actually actively avoid looking for evidence or or disregard evidence that disconfirms your belief, or you, you just play it down and say, oh, that's that study was poorly conducted or, you know, that's not relevant or whatever. Um, so there's, there's confirmation bias. Uh, but I think the main, like people just don't look for the evidence, right? Like, you know, I didn't for the first 10 years I was taught Pilates. I never thought, huh, I wonder if that's actually true. I'll just go and look it up. Right. It never occurred to me to do that. So, um, thank you, librarian. Um, so there's that. And then I think the vested interest, I think, I think is probably vested interest in inertia, I'd say that much bigger in my view, because, all right, if you're Stott Pilates and you have a, 
you've trained, I don't know, I'm just guessing at this point, but maybe 30,000 instructors worldwide they've trained, right? So I've got 30,000 Stop Pilates instructors out there teaching Stop Pilates. And Stop Pilates, like principle number two out of five is pelvic placement, right? Which is all about this neutral spine and neutral pelvis, safest and strongest position for shock, right? So you've, and you've got like 30,000, minimum 30,000 copies of your manual that you've sold, right? Which is a high gloss, you know, thick cardstock, high quality print, you know, thing that you've now distributed all over the world in seven different languages or whatever. And you've got, you know, courses that are written and then like thousands of instructor trainers that have come to do these trainings that are now delivering the trainings. You've got all the written materials that support that. And you've got a website and a whole lot of DVDs and you've got whole like trainings and certifications based around this whole concept, right? To, to then just go, you know what? We were wrong, right? Massively undermines your credibility, I think, well, in my mind, actually, that would enhance someone's credibility, right? But I think people are worried that by saying, oh, no, we were wrong for the last 20 years, sorry, you know, actually, neutral spine is not the safest and strongest position for shock absorption, even though we made you repeat it 100 times a day, you know. <laughs> um, it just, it's, it's, I think it's very hard for them to contemplate doing that just from a brand perspective. Um, it's also probably expensive, too, to have to, change all your right and your, that's the your part, educational right? resources right you'd have to require all of those people to go through a sort of supplemental training change all of the manuals all of the dvds all of the coursework all of the websites like so much stuff would have to be changed like just an unbelievable amount of expense that would cost millions of dollars um at a minimum uh so uh, yeah, I think it's just, I think it's, it's, it's a vested interest and inertia are the main thing. And they're, you know, th because of vested interest in inertia, they just use confirmation bias to see what they want to see. Yeah. I can see that as an unvirtuous cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and not to pick on stop Pilates in particular. I mean, I, I use them a lot when I'm, because I, I have experience with stop Pilates, right? And I haven't, I haven't been affiliated with stop Pilates for over a decade now. So I don't know what they're currently doing apart from just what I see on their website, which looks like they're still doing the same thing. Um, but I, I've had like an outsider's view of Polestar and Bassey and, you know, other, you know, um, uh, other Pilates trainings. And what I've seen from their literature and the videos that they put out and, and stuff, yeah, basically the same. Yeah, I would agree with that. I um, Over the years, I have met up with many people who have been stock Pilates trained. And like I said, I mean, we know what they're still teaching because we just checked their website. And, it's, and this is not going to be, this is absolutely not to pick on stock Pilates. This is just what you know. And that's why we're talking about it. And it, I think it's very common all over the Pilates industry. Yeah, super common. I think the other part that's really interesting um, and the thing that also makes me chuckle too is the the studies that have shown that even when we think we're neutral, we're actually not. Oh, yeah. yeah. Talk about that a bit. <laughs> um, well, there are a couple of good studies. Uh, I think there's a, actually a fantastic um, one by just a Facebook post by Greg Lehman. Um, illustrating this, but there's one study, it's by Kingma et al. 2010, where they uh, were they basically got people to lift an object from various heights, 
so from floor height or from knee height, and they did it under different conditions where they said, okay, just do it however you want, or they said, make sure you keep your back straight, or they said, have your feet really wide and make sure you keep your back straight. Um, and so, and then they had all of these sensors and things on all over these people's backs, and they measured their spinal position throughout these lifts. And what they found was even when your knees are very wide and you're specifically instructed to bend at the knees and the hips and keep your back straight, and you're picking something up from knee height, the minimum spinal flexion in the lumbar spine was 22 degrees, right? So this is like the most you know, weightlifting style lift you can possibly do, like picking something up from knee height, right? It's really, really basic task. And people who flex their spines 22 degrees and, you know, under lab conditions with like 10 researchers standing there going, keep your back straight, you know, and they still bend, bent their back 22 degrees. And moreover, we've got other research showing that experienced physiotherapists can't visually detect spinal flexion at less than, I think it's 34 degrees, right? So if you flexed up to 33 degrees, which is a lot. That's a lot of degrees. Right? That's a lot of degrees. Between zero and 30, 32, 33 degrees, physio, experienced physiotherapists can't tell the difference, right? And in fact, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the US, recommends assessing spinal posture in 30 degree increments because that's that's as accurate as we as we're able to be, right? Plus or minus thirty degrees. Wow, <laughs> so, that's that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, I guess you know it is it is hard, you know, if you stop Pilates or even if you're Bassy or, or whoever to to change all of that literature to change your public stance on everything. So, hey, everyone, those last fifty courses you did with us all wrong. Um, you know, do it this way now. Um, I, and on a smaller scale, I think it's it's also hard if you're just an instructor right? And you've told your clients for the last decade or five years or one year or whatever, hey, all your back pain is because you're not controlling your neutral spine, you're not stabilizing properly, so I'm going to teach you how to do that. And then there you want to go back to your clients and go, oh, yeah, whoops, sorry, that was all wrong. Actually, it doesn't matter how you <laughs> have your spine. And load tolerance is actually probably more predictive of pain. In fact, probably even psychosocial factors are more predictive <laughs> of pain than load tolerance. But, you know, uh, yeah, so don't worry about that. So it's hard. I think it's very hard for any or anyone to sort of go back and, and say, look, I was wrong. Now I understand a bit better. Here's the way I think we should do it moving forward. So I think there's a, there's a perceived cost for anyone to doing that. And the more expertise you kind of project into the world, like the more you know, if impatient information booklets you've created, the more blog posts you've done, the more Instagram videos you've done explaining why you have to be in neutral spine to be safe, you know, the more arguments you've had in the comment section about why you have to be in neutral spine, you know, it, the harder it is to go back and say, you know what, actually, yeah, I was wrong. So, so there's a real cost. So how, do, so how can how can people, you know, when they do have that uncomfortable or possibly liberating realization that they've been wrong about this or something else, but let's let's say neutral spine, how do they 
how do they then, how do they come out? You know, once you realize you're, you're, you're not, you don't believe neutrospine is the safest and strongest position for weight bearing and sugar absorption anymore. Like, how do you come out? How do you go back? How do you, how do you go back from that? How did I do it? <laughs> well, how do you, how did you do it and how can others do it? Well, I think the first part is to, for you have to be brave and you have to forgive yourself. And I think what you said is exactly how I would say it, which is, this is how I used to do it because this is how I was taught to do it. But since then, science has changed. I've learned, uh, I've learned a different way and I was wrong. And this is the way that I'd like for us to try it now. I mean, I've said that so many times and I think the first couple of times I felt embarrassed or self-conscious, but it's, I just don't think it's that much of a big deal anymore. And I think it's just, in my mind, I am providing a much better service and I am so much more, I, I feel more confident and I also feel, if I could, what do I want to say? I think there's a level of maturity and humility that can come with the idea that I constantly live my life saying, I could be wrong, I can be changed. And, and really that's what it is for me. It's just like, I would rather, I would rather be wrong and be willing to change and admit that I was wrong and then acknowledge that I'm changing than to dig my heels in and get defensive and, and ultimately do that to serve my own ego rather than to serve my clients better. I just don't think where I'm at right now, I just don't see it as a big deal. When I first started off, I, I didn't feel confident, not because I wasn't confident in the science, but because I was feeling just more alone in my teaching philosophy. And I think what contributed to my confidence was, number one, practicing saying, hey, I was wrong. Here's what I know now. When you know better, you do better. Um, so that just takes some practice and then it just doesn't feel yucky anymore. But then also to be part of a community that is really invested in trying to stay up to date. And, you know, like working for Breathe and having coworkers, we change all the time. And I'll be the first to say, number one, I don't like change. And number two, changing is takes a lot of work. And we know this, you know, even in, in our course where anytime we make any kind of change, whether that's a big change or a, a small change, we have to go through the course with a fine tooth comb and scrub things and change things and remake things. And it is a royal pain in the ass. It's, I know that I'm going to be working longer hours that week or the next couple of weeks, but that's what needs to be done. If we are going to stay true to the idea that we could be wrong. We can be changed. Um, mm. So I just don't see it as a, at this point, I just don't see it as a big deal. I would rather do it that way. What about you? There are two things you said there that I really want to uh, just, I, I guess, highlight. One is that uh, admitting you're wrong is kind of a muscle. And by just doing reps, you just get, it just gets stronger and there's pretty much becomes no big deal. Just like riding a bike or falling off a log, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it turns out, I was incorrect about this and here's what we now understand as being you know, more accurate. So we're going to go with that. Uh, so that's one thing is like it, you just, the more reps you do, like the easier it gets until it gets to the point where it's like, it's just, it's just easy. Uh, and the second thing is, I mean, I, 
this was kind of implicit in what you said, but I think like it's better to admit you were wrong than to know you're wrong and keep being wrong. You know, like how, how would you feel if you knew you were wrong and you kept teaching that to your clients and they were paying you money in good faith and doing the things you asked them to do and you're, you feel like you feel terrible, you know, taking their money and telling them stuff you knew to be not the best, most accurate information, you know, and so I think, you know, there's kind of a carrot and a stick there that, you know, it feels terrible to do it, you know, to, to, to admit you're wrong, but it gets much, much easier. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And the, the more you don't do it, the harder it gets to live with yourself, really. And the more you to dig, dig a hole, you know, if you're digging a hole, like just stop digging, you know. <laughs> well, that's the thing about holes is the more you dig, the deeper you get into it and the harder it is to dig your way out. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think the other part that you mentioned too earlier is about when you start, when your teaching style and your teaching philosophy becomes so fully in, intertwined in your identity, it becomes harder to change. So, you know, I guess maybe the solution to that is I, my identity is that I could be wrong. I can be changed. And that way I always have I, my, the door is always open. Like I, I have a way out every time. I always barrack for the winning team. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. Who do you barrack for? Well, who's winning? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's what we, what we should do is, is, is align our professional identity with, well, I'm someone who just follows the science, follows the facts as I understand them. And if my understanding changes or if the science changes, well, I just change my view on that topic, you know, um, rather than I'm someone who does X, Y, Z technique, you know, or I'm someone who does X, Y, Z modality, or I'm someone who believes in X, Y, Z, you know, treatment, you know, it's like, I don't think that those are useful identities because they automatically impose a cost if you want to back away from that at some point. And so I think rather than thinking of yourself as being, I'm a you know instructor who works biomechanically or I work from the, the principles of XYZ Pilates certification, think of yourself as being like, I'm somebody who changes my mind when I learn new information, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm currently using, you know, bits of this and bits of this and bits of this, because as I understand it, that's the best, most effective way of doing things. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I absolutely agree. You know, I was thinking about what you were just saying and, it, you know, like if you think about, uh, for instance, medicine. So shout out to October, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. If you are, um, if you're at high risk or if you're at a certain age, please get yourself checked out. That's my PSA for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But I'm bringing it up because um, I had breast cancer a couple years ago. And when I met with my surgeon, if she had said to me, there's this technique that I'm going to use back from 1999 when I was in medical school, uh, sign right here, <laughs> sign the dotted line and give me your credit card. I would have run out the door, right? Like what I want to hear um, as a patient 
going into, you know, a surgery that's going to change my life is I want to hear from this doctor that she is cutting edge, that she is up to date with the latest science. It's not even just my surgeon. It was my oncologist uh, talking with my oncologist about certain drug treatments that she wanted me to go on. One of the ways that I, I knew that I was going to like her and I wanted to work with her was she said, okay, so here's this drug protocol that we think that you need to take. The standard amount is 20 milligrams, but I think that you could get away with five milligrams, which means you're still taking the drug, but it's going to be less side effects because it's a much lower dose here. I, and she printed it out for me. She, she gave it to me and she said, here's, here's the study that talks about this. And I was like, yep, you're the one, <laughs> you're the one that I am going to spend my time with. And that's what I mean. It's just like in any other profession, when you, you know, when the stakes are really high, you want people who are staying up to date with the latest information and the latest research. You want to stay up to date with people who are doing the work and making that inv investment because it's not about them and their reputation. It's about me. It's about me putting my life into the hands of somebody else and I, and just having the confidence that they know what they're talking about and they've, they're staying up to date. So, yeah. And, you know, granted Pilates is not as life or death as say chemotherapy or breast cancer surgery or, or whatever, but uh, even in anything, it's like, well, if I go to my dentist, you know, I want to know that they're using the, the latest materials and the, the latest techniques and, and whatever. If I go to a gym, I don't want to be given like one of those fat wobbling machines from the 1930s where they have this big kind of band that goes around your tummy and wobbles your fat to make it go away. Right? I know exactly what you you're know? talking about. <laughs> um, because that just doesn't freaking work, right? So I want I want a more evidence-based practitioner who's going to go, okay, let's look at your diet, let's look at your exercise, let's look at your calorie expenditure, all of that stuff, and and formulate me a plan. And the same, if like for for any thing, like if I go to a dietitian, a nutritionist, right? I don't want to give them to give me advice from the 1950s, right? I want them to give me current evidence-based, you know, best guideline advice about, you know, what's the best diet for my health. So, and I, I think, well, why would that be any different for Pilates? Going back to your point that Pilates is not as risky or as serious as, as breast cancer treatment, when it comes to things like keeping your low back safe and pain-free, that's a big deal for the vast majority of people around the world who suffer from low back pain and who also um, are afraid to hurt their back. So I'm going to say that when it comes to things like understanding neutral and imprint and load management, those are actually quite high stakes because the things that we say to our clients can impact how they go about their lives and whether or not they move fearlessly or with fear. So I think it actually is kind of high stakes in this particular topic with this particular topic. I guess I'm going to agree and disagree on that. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to get me to agree that it's as high stakes as breast cancer surgery. Agreed. Because that's Agreed. literally life and death. <laughs> Agreed. <you know? laughs> um, and I do agree, though, that, uh, you know, and that we have research showing that when we use like alarming diagnostic labels like disc bulge, you know, to, to explain someone's pain, or when we 
create a lot of rules around movement. You must move this way. You must not move that way. You know, you must have this alignment. You must activate this muscle. Um, that can create kinesophobia, like fear of movement. It can cause people to be fearful of moving in certain ways or fearful of moving in general and to avoid activities. And we know that actually kinesophobia and uh, catastrophizing, like thinking the worst is going to happen if I do this thing, they're actually associated with more back pain, right? So if you can actually reduce fear of movement and catastrophizing, you improve back pain. And I'll include a study. It's actually from this year, 2023, where they found that when people did Pilates and it successfully helped their back pain, about you know, one third, or you know, they they just they concluded quote a moderate amount of that um, effect was mediated by reductions in fear of movement and catastrophizing. Right, so a significant amount of the actual benefit people get from doing Pilates comes from reduced fear, right, and reduced catastrophizing. And so, you know, in order to reduce fear and catastrophizing, we should not say, "Be careful if you don't move this way, you know, your back will explode." Right? Like we should promote a fearless attitude, and a fearless attitude, in my view, right, is where you truly don't care if you're in neutral or not, because it's like, why would I freaking care about that? You know, it's like, do you have red hair while you're doing your squat or your hundred? It's like, well, who freaking cares? It doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> like it's irrelevant. And I think in terms of safety, that's how I think about neutral spine versus imprint. It's just a completely and utterly irrelevant you know, consideration for safety in terms of, can you get a bit of a better activation of your lower abs in imprint? Yeah, I think you probably can. Or even better if you flatten your low back to the mat. Right? But in so I would cue those things, like I said at the start, but I would never, ever, ever use the word safety <laughs> in the same sentence as as either of those terms. Well, and you know, at the end of the day, and we don't we can save this discussion for another time in terms of load management. I remember having a discussion with one of my clients who felt very strongly about um, squat lifting over stoop lifting. She felt very strongly that it was safer for in her for her to do squat lifting versus stoop lifting. And what I said to her was, imagine that you were you needed to lift a car. It doesn't matter if you have proper alignment and form to lift the car, if you're not capable, if your tissues are not ready to manage the load, the weight of the car, you're gonna get injured even if you squat lift the car, um, over stoop lift the car. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is about load management, but. Well, I would submit that um, if she had to stoop, if she had to lift a car, she probably would stoop lift it. What we know is that there, from biomechanical studies, uh, actually lifting with a rounded back is more efficient. And when I say more efficient, what I mean is you can lift a heavier load with less muscle activation with a rounded back. Um, so that's like the definition of efficiency, right? More work with less effort. Uh, and that is probably why elite power lifters, I'm talking about people who can lift like triple their body weight, as they get close to lifting their, their absolute maximum, like above 90% of their maximum, they pretty much all round their back. And I've got research on this as well, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Um, and, you know, there are, moreover, in terms of, so, so, you know, 
lifting with a flex spine is more efficient and basically everyone does it. When we, when you lift something heavy enough, we all do it. Um, uh, and you know, the whole notion, I think underpinning this kind of neutral versus imprint thing is the notion of, you know, I guess this is kind of like the, the part of the iceberg that's under the water and if the bit of above the water is like, you know, neutral or imprint, well, a bit under the water for me is like, well, does quote bad technique increase injury risk, right? If you do it improperly, you know, whatever it is, you know, doing the hundreds or doing your push ups with your elbows hyperextended or doing your squat with your knees coming in or whatever, like does bad technique cause injury? And um, we've got uh, a bunch of lines of evidence that very, very strongly suggest that it doesn't. Um, so for example, um, uh, in a systematic review of systematic reviews in 2020, they looked at um, spinal posture and its relation to low back pain. And they concluded that there's no core or there's not evidence of a causal relationship between any spine posture and low back pain. So not just flexion, whether it's extension, side bending, awkward postures at work, whatever it might be, there's not, there's not uh, good evidence of any uh, causal relationship there. Uh, and if we look at some, you know, and then we've got the compressive load uh, pig spine experiments, but then if we look at just actual in injury incidents in different sports, right? If you had to guess between like recreational running, like jogging, okay, versus ballet versus CrossFit, which one would you guess has the highest incidence of injuries per thousand hours? Mm, my guess is probably ballet. Uh, or running. Uh, actually, it's running. Yeah. Hmm. Um, followed by ballet, with CrossFit coming in as the safest of the three Oh, my activities. gosh. Yeah, so uh, there's a injury incidence. Now, they're, they're not that far apart, right? <laughs> uh, uh, injury incidence in CrossFit um, uh, is 0.27 to 3.3 injuries per 1,000 hours. 0.27 to 3.3. In uh, ballet, it's 3.9 to 4.4 per thousand hours. In running, it's 2.5 to 33. 33? Why is there such a widespread? <laughs> um, well, I guess it's, it's, this is from a systematic review, and it's just like they're looking at different studies, and different studies found different amounts. Um, but you know, even if we take the low end of that, it's still higher than CrossFit. Right, uh, and so you know the the sort of the classic kind of view is that well, cl CrossFit people do it when they're they they push very hard. They go to the point where they're super fatigued, and then their technique breaks down when they're fatigued, and then they get injured because they're doing it with incorrect technique. Well, that just turns out to be not true because we actually have fewer injuries in CrossFit compared to ballet. Now, ballet is like literally a technique activity. It's like it, it, the technique is the activity. So it's like doing ballet with sloppy technique is not a thing, right? Like, unless you're just a terrible ball ballerina. <laughs> I mean, because technique is what you're doing in ballet, whereas in CrossFit, what you're doing is lifting up a really freaking heavy barbell, right? And if you look ugly while you do it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but in ballet, it, looking ugly while you do it is like, that's not the point. So in ballet... If you were doing it ugly in ballet, then you wouldn't be a ballet dancer. You wouldn't be a ballet dancer, right? So, <laughs> You'd be out so, of a job. Right. So so injury incidence in ballet is, you know, 
relatively higher, it's like 50% above CrossFit, even though ballet, you know, presumably they're way better technique and alignment and all that because ballet is all about technique and alignment. Um, So it just goes to show that technique and alignment are not important for injury prevention. Now, I don't, I'm not suggesting for a second that more technique and alignment gives you a greater chance of injury. That's not what I'm suggesting here. I'm just suggesting it's like there are other factors involved, right? And technique and, and alignment just aren't important, right? They're just not the most or even the 10th or even the 100th most important thing when it comes to injury prevention. So the whole notion is not is flawed, I think. So here's my question. Um, if we look at injuries in Pilates, in a Pilates studio, for instance, and I don't know if you have actually have, if anyone knows whether or not there's research, it's probably you, Raph. Um, but I'm wondering, in the Pilates studio setting, what is the reason for most injuries? So there, if there are injuries. I've looked for this and I could not find any research on injuries in Pilates. Um, but I've found research on injuries in fitness centers, like gyms, in yoga, in CrossFit, in weightlifting, and in wrestling and in breakdancing, right? And so if we sort of put all of these things on a Venn diagram, you know, breakdancing, wrestling, yoga, CrossFit, lifting weights at the gym, you know, Pilates is somewhere in the middle in between those things, right? So it's like, you know, sort of a bit like yoga and sort of a bit like breakdancing and sort of a bit like wrestling. And, you know, in terms of the exercise and gymnastics, we've got injury, um, uh, you know, incidents in gymnastics. And so the thing that, uh, in terms of what causes injuries, um, the only uh, literature that we have that I've been able to find, I've looked hard at this, because this is a question I'm very interested in, is in fitness centers. And there are two studies that I've found that had uh, several hundred participants, um, and they looked at admissions to emergency rooms from pe- for people who had injured themselves at fitness centers. And what they found was the overwhelming majority, like very high majority um, of those injuries were caused by people dropping shit on their, on themselves, right? Or f- falling off a treadmill or, you know, the cable breaking on the machine or whatever. Like basically just they were workplace health and safety type issues, not exercise technique type issues. Um, uh, so, and when we look at, um, so that's, that's kind of the direct evidence we have that's not specific to Pilates, but it's like, okay, well, if you're throwing around, you know, barbells and things and the highest cause of injury is dropping the barbell on your foot, you know, that suggests that actually you're not doing much damage to your back (laughs) when you're lifting the, or your shoulder or whatever, when you're lifting the barbell. Um, when we look at uh, things like uh, yoga, you know, breakdancing, you know, wrestling, um, where people do like really extreme positions of the body, you know, like in in wrestling, they do like incredible like wrestlers bridges where they go in a fully extended neck, all of their body weight on their head, you know, um, and just crazy positions like that. And we see that, you know, these people have very low incidence of injuries in their neck, and in their back, what they where they get injuries is in their wrists. A lot of these people, um, and uh, I think from memory, it's like hips as well. Um, but you know, you, the 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 body parts that typically people like bend a lot in those activities 
are not the ones that are most injured in those activities. So um, I think, you know, my interpretation of all of that is that, yes, you absolutely can injure yourself in Pilates. I think the biggest risk is tripping over the foam roller someone left on the floor or falling off the reformer or catching your foot in the spring or something like that. Um, or someone leaving a glass of water, you know, on the studio floor and it breaking and someone walking around in bare feet and stepping on it. Uh, so I think all of those things are real risks. Uh, I think that in any sport, there's always the opportunity to pull a muscle or do whatever. I mean, you walk out to your mailbox, you can pull a muscle, you know, um, but the risk, and we know this from a copious literature that they just forced force-fed to me like some kind of foie gras grease when I did my degree in exercise science, is that the risks of injuring yourself in when you exercise are like absolutely mountainously overshadowed by the risks of dying of a heart attack or cancer if you don't exercise. So whatever risk you incur by doing Pilates or running marathons or doing CrossFit or whatever is just like you're gaining a, a tiny risk and foregoing a huge risk of dying of any other cause, like your all-cause mortality risk just goes way down when you exercise. And not only that, but so many health outcomes, not just lifespan outcomes, improve when you exercise that it's like the, in terms of, yes, you know, do certain risks go up when you exercise? Yes. But in terms of does your absolute risk go up? No, it goes way the heck down, way down, way down. You know, like, yeah, the riskiest thing you can do is not exercising. <laughs> Exactly. Well, apart from, apart from smoking. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to going back to my uh, comparison between breast cancer and things leading up, language leading up to kinesiophobia. So we could probably follow the little trail crumbs and that if kinesiophobia leads people to not move, then that is very, very risky. It could be life and death, but the, the death might be 50 years down the track. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in breast cancer, it might be in a matter of months. Right. So I'm still going to I'm still going to say breast cancer is <laughs> more risky, and I, I, I want to insist on my surgeon's qualifications to a much more rigorous degree than I'm going to do with my Pilates instructor. I mean, I got to say, like, I am just going to say my my breast surgeon here in Seattle. Her name is Angelina Crown, and I I love her for so many reasons, and I respect her for so many reasons. But one of the things that um, she did for me was that when I was having surgery, I needed to have some lymph nodes removed. This is pretty standard when you have a double mastectomy is they want to make sure that the cancer hasn't spread. So they remove lymph nodes. It's called a sentinel node um, dissection, and they take that out. And what happens when you remove lymph nodes from the body is that you, the person then becomes at very high risk for lymphedema, which is swelling. Um, in the upper quadrant. And I remember she said to me that my risk is about 1%. And she's, and, and in my mind, I'm like, oh, 1%, that's not a big deal. And she said, there's this cutting edge surgery technique that I want to use with your permission, and it'll cut your risk down to like 0.3%. And she said to me, that's worth it. So again, it just like, I, I really admire and respect and trust her because She's cutting edge. Like, let's just let's just stay on top of the research. And we are not dead pig spines. Thanks, Adam McAtee. So, all right. So, where would where can we leave it? What 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 advice or what guidance or what 
words of inspiration or what just personal experience would you share, you know, to sum this all up, if you're somebody out there who's been teaching for a while or maybe not, maybe just a new, maybe a new instructor and who has been kind of raised as a Pilates kid and teenager in this neutral spine versus imprint um, debate or question or whatever. Uh, and now they're curious and they're going to go to the show notes of our show and look at some of those citations that we provided because we, whenever we make a claim about something, we try and provide a citation for it. And maybe they'll start to read those and I go, huh, this is true. I'm reading the systematic review that says spinal flexion hasn't been shown to be, you know, causative factor in injury risk or whatever. And they, they start to experience like, oh shit, <laughs> I've, I've been doing it wrong. Um, and they want to get on, you know, on the right side of history as it were, you know, uh, or be less wrong. Um, so yeah, what are, what are the practical things they can do? They've been to, you know, I've got a whole roster of clients. I've got colleagues, I've got a, an employer potentially, maybe they've got a website, they've got blog posts about neutral spine they've done, you know, how do you go about <laughs> rolling, rolling this all back? Well, let's just start with, let's just start with yourself. The first thing is to not be hard on yourself, you know, like you did the best you could with what you had and now you have something different. So you can start to make decisions about how you want to change and, um, you know, for me, when I, when I learned that neutral spine was not the safest option or the gold standard, I just stopped cueing it. And some people, some of my clients did notice. So I didn't, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. I didn't start wearing a bumper sticker across my chest that said, Hey, I no longer teach a neutral spine. Um, but I just stopped cueing it and I did have many conversations with clients when they noticed. So I think that's one thing. Um, and how did those conversations go? Um, They're just like, oh, I noticed that you're not cueing in neutral anymore. And really, I think what I learned when I was having this, these interactions was by and large, my clients really just wanted my reassurance that number one, they were doing the exercise correctly. And number two, that they were doing the exercise safely. They want both. A lot of Pilates clients want both. They want to do things correctly and safely. And so um, just being able to meet my clients where they're at to say, oh, you're doing really great. You look, how does it feel for you? If it feels good, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You look awesome. Um, I will also say that there was a period of time when I was a newly informed teacher and I was trying to educate people like about the, the difference. Smoker. Yes. I was the I was proselytizing and that I learned was also not a very good uh, strategy. So no, I'm just quite quiet about things. I think the other thing too is like, you know, in terms of like who are you proselytizing to? My clients. clients. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also to uh, also to um some of my Pilates instructor uh friends who We've had numerous, numerous debates, and by and large, like we've come up better on the other side. Um, you know, if you have if you have blog posts and posts and things like that, I think that at some point when it makes sense to be able to acknowledge it, I wouldn't scrub everything. I would just say, "Hey, I've just changed, and it's okay." I mean, I, I think it really just depends. You know, if I can't speak to a, a huge organization like Stott Pilates or even the training program that I was originally trained at, um, 
that's a whole nother situation. And like you said, like there's so much more at stake financially, even if you think about like what you need to do to, to change something, like think about what it was like when you changed your logo, when you changed Breathe's logo, like, I don't feel like I have a place to talk about that. Like that's a huge deal. But for an individual instructor, I think, you know, you just start to fold into your practice some, some, a new way of doing things. And all of a sudden you forget that. I don't even think about neutral spine anymore. I just truly don't. And every now and then I come across a student or a, a student at Breathe or a client in the Pilates studio who will bring up neutral. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Like I had to, I had to think about what that means. And obviously if you stay in neutral, nothing bad is going to happen. If you imprint, nothing bad is going to happen. So that's why, you know, when you first asked me neutral or imprint, I'm like, whatever feels good for you is the way that you should do it. The way that you should do it is the way that you get your best hundred shape. <laughs> that's the way that you should do it. Well, what did you do? I'm curious what I'm thinking, I'm trying to make a picture in my mind of you, Raf, as the studio owner or the, you know, the head of Breathe. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, neutral we're not going to do this anymore like was there an internal memo like what what did you do? what was the situation was there a strategy day to talk about neutral versus Honest, imprint i honestly can't remember i think it was probably at a stage in the organization where we were pretty small and it was probably just me or maybe me and one other person teaching or whatever and it was just probably a two-minute conversation over coffee one time um uh you know now we've got like 28 people in the company it's you have to take more you have to be more intentional about <laughs> changing things. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the blog post thing and I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of in two minds about that. Like, uh, I would, on the one hand, I would want to, I wouldn't want to hide it. That's like, okay, I used to believe this thing. Now I believe this other thing. I think that's actually not something that should be hidden. I think it's good. I think it's a sign of a strong mind that can adapt, you know, an agile mind that can adapt to, you know, new inf information with changing your view. So I don't think there's any shame in, in leaving that up. But if if I've got a blog post that gets a lot of visitors and if, I, if someone searches on Google, like, you know, spinal position, they find my blog post from 2008 where I was saying, you know, neutral spine is the best and they go and they go and use that and apply that. And then they go, yes, Raf has taught me all about neutral spine. It's awesome. And I'm going to teach my clients all about it and they're going to teach their clients about it. And it's like, yeah, no, I don't want that out in the world still like influencing people. So I think there's some balance point there between like, okay, if it's like some obscure social media post I did five years ago or whatever that happened to be wrong and like 12 people are going to view it in the next 10 years, who cares? Like just leave it. <laughs> but, um, you know, like there's, there are a couple of things that, uh, we've, we've rolled back from here in Pilates Elephants, like, uh, episodes where we've said, you know, we believe A, B, and C. And then like a couple of years later, it's like, oh, actually now we've become aware of new research and we don't believe that anymore. We believe this slightly modified version of that or whatever. I mean, you and I had a conversation a couple of weeks back um, about, about one of those areas. Uh, and so I choose to leave those earlier episodes because I think if somebody's going to, I think for the, for the former reason, right? Like they'll, they'll see that, okay, here was me, couple of years ago what I believed and here now me changing my mind on this being presented by updated evidence. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess it's up, I think it's up to each person to decide you want to pull that blog post down or, or leave it up. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm thinking about, um, 
you know, we, at this point, how many episodes does Elephants have? Uh, we're about, I think this will, this one will be like 165 or 170, something like that. That's amazing. I mean, I was with you from like episode one. That is just so many, that's just so cool. But, you know, maybe. May- I think with, with uh, my, my perception is a lot of people now haven't listened to all of them. It's a, a lot of episodes um, and they're all pretty lengthy, like most of them are an hour plus. So I think people sort of dip in and out is my my assumption, that, and they sort of scroll through and go, hey, this one looks interesting, or that one looks interesting, um, rather than just kind of starting at episode one and listening all the way through. When, when we had like 20 episodes or 30, people used to DM me and say, I've just binge listened to the, every episode, but I don't get those DMs anymore. Now we've got like 160 plus. <laughs> That's just too much. It'd be like weeks. Right. Well, I was just thinking that if if going looking back at, at the Pilates Elephants Library, that if there was ever an episode that... Um, is no longer relevant in terms of the research. Maybe we keep it up, but we just put a little big, a big sticker warning at the beginning and says, "Our, you know, we're going to keep this up, but if you want updated information, we go to episode 255, <laughs> right? Yeah, good idea. All right. Great. Well, maybe we should go back on that one. We talked about posture and, and exercise. So maybe we should scroll back through the archives and put a little disclaimer on the earlier episode. Yeah. Part two. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.